Continue our study here through the book of Hebrews. Remember, Hebrews, it's all about Jesus. Keep that in the back of your mind. It's all about Christ. The longer I walk with the Lord, the longer I get the, the blessing of pastoring this church, the more I realize it's all about Christ. It is not about me. It's not about Harvest Fellowship. It's not about any of that. It's about representing Jesus to the lost world. We get so focused on us and our wants being met, our feelings getting hurt. We get so focused on us. We get so focused on a building. We get so focused on something temporary where the Lord says, no, keep your eyes on me. Keep your eyes on me. And so Hebrews here is really the case for Jesus as our Savior. You've been with us here for a while. Chapter 1, he's better than the angels. Chapter 2, he's better than Moses. Then he's better than Joshua. Then he's better than the whole Levitical priesthood. And then finally, Jesus is our high priest that takes us into a relationship with God. And that's what we're going to keep building on here tonight. But it's all about Christ. I just want to remind you, as you get closer to Christmas, it really has nothing to do with what we make Christmas about. Keep the focus on Christ. Keep the focus on that. When you go into work tonight or tomorrow, and your marriage and your relationships, keep everything through an eternal focus. And I tell you, everything else falls into place. It truly, truly does. So with that being said, a nice little summary to start out our teaching here tonight. Hebrews 9, verse 11. Christ came as high priest of the good things to come, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. We talked about the last couple weeks. Jesus is greater than any priesthood that's been set up on this earth. Jesus is the high priest. Jesus is greater than that tabernacle temple that was set up. We talked about in detail about the tabernacle a couple last week. And I encourage you to get a copy of that. We talked about the different elements in the tabernacle and how they're all a picture of Jesus. He's greater than that. Verse 12, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Your sins are taken care of, not through the blood of an animal, but through the blood of God himself. As we see out here a lot, Jesus' blood is the only currency accepted up in heaven. The blood of Christ, not the blood of goats and bulls, but the blood of Christ. Because why not the animals? Look at verse 13. If the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh. If, those, if, that blood, if that blood can cover your sin for a moment, guess what? Verse 14. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Just think about that logic for a second. If God said the blood of of a bull or a goat could temporarily cover your sin, an animal, a dirty, imperfect animal, the writer of Hebrews is saying, imagine now how much more Jesus himself can do for your sin. Verse 15, and for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the internal inheritance. That's why Jesus gets to take care of the new covenant. And if you weren't with us last week, covenant. That's where we get our word for testament. New Testament, Old Testament. The old covenant was the Levitical law. All those rules and regulations. The new covenant, the New Testament, is that you're saved through Christ. And so since Jesus is the one that does this, he's the one that gets the mediator of it. Verse 15. He's the one that gets to make sure it's done properly. Now, here's the catch. This covenant is a testament. It's kind of like a will. Now, some of you here tonight are in somebody's will. 
Now, you don't get that stuff until what? The person has to die. That's the way the will works. And so what happens is it's the same thing with Jesus. Jesus, through Christ, we have salvation. We have forgiveness of sins, but there's a catch. Jesus has to die. Look at verse 16. For where there is a testament, a covenant, a will, there must also by necessity be the death of the testator. The person that did the will has to die. If I came up to you and said, I'm leaving you everything I own, and you didn't know it, but I'm a secret millionaire. I have more property and money than you could ever imagine. I'm giving it to you and you alone. You'd be marking the days to my death. I know it. It's like James, go home and see Jesus. You right? What's that? <laughs> What's that, John? Well, yeah, don't plot my death, Ron. Good golly. We went from a joke to now it's scary, man. Seriously. We're just talking about Jesus. And you're like, plot your death, James. Last time I pray for you. Um, to get the will, you got to have the person die. You want the blessings of Christ? Christ has to die. Verse 17, for a testament is in force, a will is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. It has no power. Jesus has to die to make this work. Now look, as we go past here now in verse 18, blood. Blood is going to be mentioned so much in these next few verses. Verse 18, therefore not even the first covenant, the Old Testament law, was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. You don't understand how bloody this was, how absolutely messy this was. My, my first job... Working outside the farm, I grew up working on a farm, but my first job outside the farm was working at a meat locker. And I was the one that cleaned up the kill floor. And so you would go in while they're doing the killing, there's blood. There's blood everywhere. You don't realize how messy that is, the butchering of an animal. And if you imagine just animal after animal after animal, please note the repetition. Verse 18, you've got to have blood. Verse 19, blood is sprinkled on the people. It's sprinkled on the book. Verse 20, the blood of the covenant. Verse 21, the blood is in the tabernacle. The blood is on the vessels of the ministry. We mentioned this a couple weeks ago. If you think about the Ark of the Covenant... And you think about what's on top of it, the mercy seat. Every year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, they'd go in and sprinkle blood on it. Far as we know, they never went in and cleaned the blood off. There's no mention of that in the Bible. And year after year, this would become a bloody mess to remind you of what the sacrifice of sin looks like. Sin is ugly and disgusting. And when we sin, it's death. Think back to Genesis 3. When Adam and Eve sinned, what happened? Animals had to die. So Adam and Eve sinned. They tried to cover their nakedness with leaves. It shows man's attempt to make themselves right with God. It doesn't work. It says the Lord then took animals and put animal skins on them. The first death in the Bible is because of man's sin. That was setting the example from then on. The whole Old Testament, when you sinned, an animal died because of you. Blood everywhere. Blood Death. But look at verse 22. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without shedding of blood, there is no remission. 
always blows my mind when I run into somebody who says they believe in God, they run into somebody who is confident that they're going to heaven, but they don't really believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to get there. I have no idea how they're punching their ticket to get to heaven. There has to be somebody has to pay the penalty for our sins. Somebody does. Christ said, I will pay the penalty for your sins. Shedding of blood. There has to be shedding of blood for the remission of sins. That's our first main point tonight. Blood takes care of sin. Verse 23. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things they themselves with better sacrifice than these. If on earth, if on earth we had to sprinkle those different parts of the tabernacle with blood, the blood of an animal... What the writer of Hebrews is saying is, well, guess what? Up in heaven, those things need to be taken care of too. Remember our study back from Hebrews 8. The tabernacle is really just a picture of a heavenly scene. The Bible makes it clear that what we see on this earth is really a shadow of what's going on up in heaven. Isn't that fascinating when you think about that? So therefore, just as down here on this earth, blood had to be sprinkled on those things to make them purified, Jesus' blood up in heaven had to be taken care of up there. So that's what was going on in the heavenly scene. Because look at verse 24. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands. Jesus didn't die on the cross so that way we could get into the tabernacle and temple. But into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God for us. Christ did not suffer and die on the cross just so I could go behind the veil to get into the holy of holies to see the ark. Christ suffered and died so therefore I could have access to heaven. We have to quit looking at everything through an earthly scene and start looking at it into a heavenly scene. When you start looking at everything through the eyes of eternity, all of a sudden, as the hymn says, the things of this earth grow strangely dim. I've used this example with you guys before. Think about the last thing that you got worked up about. Did it have anything to do with eternity in heaven and hell? Probably not. Think of the last conversation that became tense with your spouse or loved one. Did it have anything to do with heaven or hell? Probably not. we got to learn to not get so worked up on this world. But it's about Christ. It's about Jesus. That's what matters most. As it says in verse 24, entering heaven itself. Verse 25, not that he, meaning Jesus, should offer himself often... As the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another, he then would have to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, and as is appointed for men to die once, but after the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Note what the writer of Hebrews is doing. Old Testament. The blood of animals could only cover sin, not take it away completely. The blood of animals had to be offered repeatedly, daily. The blood for the sins of the nation of Israel, yearly. He's saying Jesus is better than this, guys. His blood gets you into heaven, not just right on earth. His blood was offered one time, not repeatedly, daily. Jesus does not have to go to the cross every single time you sin. Jesus does not have to go to the cross every year just to make sure you're right. He offered the sacrifice once for all. That's what we're here to celebrate. I sometimes think we kind of get the celebrations wrong. You know, in the spring we like to celebrate Resurrection Day, which is vital, it's important. Amen. But when it comes to Christmas, the time we set apart for the birth of Christ, we don't know exactly when He was born. 
this is really the first step in a 33-long-year journey for him to die. Because the whole point Christ came was to do what? Die. Now imagine that the next time you see your nativity scene. That cute little baby that you see, he's on the first leg of a 33-year-long journey of death to take care of your sin and my sin. And this is why Jesus is better than the angels, Moses, Joshua, Old Testament priesthood, Levitical priesthood, anything. This is why we put our lives around Christ because he's the only one that can get us into heaven itself because his blood is the only currency accepted up there. Now, let's stop her here real quick for a second before we get on to the next thing. Any quick questions, comments about anything here? Ryan. It is a completely unbiblical concept. Um, as we've said many times out here before, if we were going to create a man-made religion, it would not be Christianity. It would not. And if you look at the man-made religions, the man-made cults, a lot of them offer what is called second-chance salvation because they don't want to accept the reality of a hell. They don't want to accept the reality of eternity and judgment where God makes it very clear. You are given a life on this earth and you're given numerous opportunities to accept or reject Jesus Christ. And once you die, it is over. It is done. I don't know if I've ever shared this with you guys before or not. My wife absolutely loves going to Cedar Point. Loves going to Cedar Point. I hate Cedar Point. It is, I just hate it. I don't like the rides. I like nothing about them in any way whatsoever. So the last time we went to Cedar Point together, I drive her. I pay for the parking. I pay for a ticket. And I rode not a single ride. So what I do is I wait in line with her. And as we get ready to wait in line, because that way we can talk and hang out together, when we get to the ride, I, just very, I try to look as cool as I can. I, I get in and just walk right through. I get in and walk right through. Every single time. I have a fear they're going to stop me and say, I'm sorry, sir, you can't. You have to ride the ride. It is a fear that I have. And they're going to strap me in. There's a spiritual point. Just bear with me. I, I am afraid of that. And like once you're in, you're in. I remember one time way back in high school, I went with Christian Brees. You guys know Christian that worships out here with us. Christian got me to go on one of the rides with him. And when they put that thing down, you know what I mean, over you, Oh, good golly, that's the worst feeling in the world. You're stuck. It's over. It's done. There's nothing you can do. I look at verse 27, and you're going to think I'm weird, and that's fine. That's my Cedar Point verse. You're stuck. You're on that ride, and you can't get off. You have chosen to reject. It is over. It's done. And and you can sit there, and there's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth, and that does not make our God an unloving God. Our God is a loving God. As we talked about, I believe it was on Sunday couple Sundays ago, hell was never created for the eternal judgment of man. Hell was created for the eternal judgment of Satan and his fallen angels. When man rejects Jesus, they go to hell. Man rejects Jesus. So God is giving you an opportunity. You reject, you're stuck. It's done, it's over. And like Ryan said, there is no second chance salvation. Anybody else got anything here before we move on? Okay, get a couple of these main points. If you had to look at everything we just read, the main verse is verse 22. According to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without shedding of blood, there's no remission. If that's all you get, that's your first point tonight. Blood has to be shed for the forgiveness of sins. It has to be. Let's go to our next one, chapter 10. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, not the very image of the things, 
can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. The law can't save you. If the law could save you, Jesus would not have to die on the cross. The purpose of the law, according to the book of Romans, is to prove that you're a sinner. The purpose of the law is for you to look at those 613 rules and say, I can't do this, Jesus. I can't. And Jesus says, I know that's the point. I have to prove to you that you can't. Well, then what am I supposed to do? You're supposed to accept me, Christ. Verse 2. For then, would they have not ceased to be offered? Isn't that logical? If the law could take care of your sins, why would Jesus have to die? Verse 2. For the worshipers, once purified, would have no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. For it's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Here's your second point. If you're only getting the main points, verse 22. You have to have the shedding of blood for sins to be removed. Verse 4. Bulls and goats and animals can't do it. They can't. Don't let anybody fool you. There is one way to get to heaven, and that is through Christ and through Christ alone. That is not narrow-minded. That is not God trying to be difficult. It's God being simple. Corinthians, the simplicity of Jesus. Do you realize how easy it is to share Christ with somebody? We get really nervous and worked up about sharing the Lord. No, it's pretty easy. It's like somebody asking for directions, and there's literally one road that goes one way. That's the only way you can get there. There is no other way to get there. It has to be Christ. Animals' blood can't do it. Verse 4, it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away your sin. It's not possible. It had to be through Christ. And what verses 5 through 8 are trying to remind you is that it was never God's system to have sacrifice. Look at verse 5. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. Verse 8. Sacrifice and offerings, burnt offerings and offerings for sin, you did not desire nor had pleasure in them. See, when David wrote those verses, that's almost sacrilegious as a Jew. To write down, God, I know you really don't want to sacrifice animals. Well, then why did he set up this whole Levitical priesthood? Because it only covered sin. It reminded you of sin. The whole picture was supposed to be Jesus. So when you see in verses 5 through 8, what they're saying is, listen, even God hinted in the Old Testament, this system is not the system that's supposed to take care of it. What has to happen? Verse 9. He said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, Old Testament. He may establish the second, New Testament. By that we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Here's our third main point. First point, 922. You need blood to take care of sin. Second point, verse 4 of chapter 10. Animal blood can't do it. Third point, verse 10 of chapter 10. Jesus can do it. Jesus can do it. And how is Jesus better? Sum it all up. Verse 11. Every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, note, my new King James has man capitalized, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. Just compare. Do a quick compare and contrast verses 11 and 12. Old Testament law, verse 11. Priests standing, ministering, which means serving daily, daily working, offering repeatedly, and they never take away sins. Just look at those four points. Standing, serving, daily, never stops. 
always repeatedly, and it never takes away sin. Now compare that to Jesus, verse 12. Jesus, one sacrifice, forever, and guess what he did? Sat down. Sat down. Works over. He took care of it. That right there explains the difference. Verse 11, if you're a note taker, you just write OT beside it. That's Old Testament. Daily sacrifices, offering repeatedly, never take away sins. Verse 12, write NT, New Testament beside it. Jesus, one sacrifice forever, sat down because his work's over. Does that not just so simply explain to you Old Testament versus New Testament? And if you're coming in here and you're having to make a decision, why would you not go with the verse 12? One sacrifice forever, take a break. What a blessing that is. What an absolute blessing that is when you stop and you look at the simplicity of that passage. Verse 13, from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool, for by one offering he, meaning Jesus, has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. I'll tell you, if the only thing you get are these four verses, just follow the logic. Hebrews 9.22, you need blood to take away sins. Hebrews 10 verse 4, animal blood can't do it. Hebrews 10 verse 10, Jesus can do it for you. Then Hebrews 10 verse 14, he has made you complete by one offering. He has perfected you. That word perfected means to be made complete. Jesus has taken care of all of it for you. That's salvation explained right then and there. How simple is that? Any quick questions, comments about anything here before we move on with the rest of Hebrews chapter 10? Megan. Yes. When God looks at you, He looks at you as righteous and holy. Now, we have to understand what the words righteous and holy mean. This is important. The word righteous just means to be made right. The word holy means to be set apart. Now, if I came up to you, to a typical person, and say, hey, you're holy. Oh, I'm not. I'm not holy. Holy is a term that we've set aside for what we would call the super saints. Those are holy people. The word holy just means set apart. You have something at home that is valuable to you. You have put that up on a shelf. You have put that in a place of prominence. So when you walk in, you see it. You have set that apart. That's what the word holy means. God has said, you are my child. You are saved by Christ. You are holy. I have set you apart from the world. So that's what holy means. Righteousness just means to be made right. Well, I've been made right. Doesn't mean I'm always right. Doesn't mean I'm perfect. It means I've been made right through Christ because before I got saved, guess what? I was wrong. So now I got saved, and guess what? I'm right. That's all the word righteousness means. And when it says that I've been perfected, does it mean perfect? Some of your translation says I've been made complete. Because before I got saved, I wasn't right. Now I've been made complete in Christ. So yes, to answer your question, you are holy, you are perfect, and you are righteous. In the biblical definition of those words. We have used those words in a different context. But from a biblical standpoint, you are perfect, made complete. You are righteous, you are right, and you are holy, set apart through Christ. So put that on your resume. I am perfect, righteous, and holy. Hire me. That's what Jesus has done for you. Anybody else have anything about this before we go on? Actually, I don't want to lose that point yet. No, seriously. Have you ever thought about that? 
I mean, seriously, go think about that. So often we come into the uh, church and you're so used to this concept of the pastor stands up and teaches and you sit there and you take notes, I hope, and you go home and it's like, oh, that was nice. No, I want you to stop and think about this. You came out on a Wednesday night in the beginning of December. It's cold. You came out for a reason. You want something more in your life. You are perfect, righteous, and holy. Let that sink into your mind when you go home tonight and you want to get into a spit with your spouse. No. Why would I want to do that? I'm perfect, righteous, and holy. When you go to work tomorrow and it's just another day, I'm just going to go get my job done. No. You are perfect, righteous, and holy. The Lord has said, I have made you complete. I have righted your wrongs. and I have set you apart from the world for a purpose. How could we ever be the same when we hear those words? You are perfect, righteous, and holy. Never forget what Christ has done for you. Because if we just let Jesus become the normal mundane, then what was the point of him dying on the cross? Never let what Jesus did become normal to you. Never. You're perfect, righteous, and holy. Okay, now I can let go of that point. Anybody else have anything here before we go on? Okay, yeah, Megan. The world does not see us that way. Let's talk about how the world sees us. Go to Corinthians. The world hates us. Preach it, sister. The world hates us. Go to 1 Corinthians. Let's talk about how the world sees us. This verse should sum up all your relationships with non-believers for the most part. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. You run into another believer. Amen! What do you read and what do you study and how can I pray for you? Oh, God's moving in my life. You run into a non-believer. They think you're an idiot. They may respect the fact that you have differences of opinions. They may respect the fact that I'm glad religion works for you. They may even play along for a little bit and pop into church or whatever. But ultimately what the Bible is saying is, listen, to a non-believer, we are considered fools. We have an antiquated morality system. We believe in creation. We believe in an invisible God that moves and works in people's lives. And when I have a problem, I think the smartest thing I could do is hit my knees and talk to somebody I've never seen before. That's foolishness to them. Now, for some of you that got saved later in life, you may remember what it was like before you got saved. And you may remember those same thoughts you had, the foolishness of it. But to the non-believing world, we are fools. And like Megan said, they hate us. Now think about this. Why do they hate us? When you claim to be a Christian, that means you're a follower of Jesus Christ. As a follower of Christ, I follow the teachings of Christ. The teachings of Christ say that the only way to get to heaven is through Christ. So therefore, as a Christian, I am saying that Muslims are not saved, Buddhists are not saved, Hindus are not saved, atheists are not saved. I am saying that all those people know I cannot respect their religion because their religion is a false religion that is sending them to hell. That's not the best way to make friends. So therefore, the world hates you for that. And just like we talked about on Sunday, when you take a stand for truth, you're like a flashlight shining in the darkness. The Bible makes it abundantly clear. When the flashlight shines in the darkness, the darkness tries to flee. People at work will not want to talk to you because you make them uncomfortable. They're not going to want to share their stories with you. People will come around you and say, oh, I'm I'm sorry. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to say that in front of you. 
they, they see something different in you. And Jesus made it very clear. He said, listen, the world hated me. They're going to hate you. We have to remember as believers, if the world wanted to crucify Christ, why do we think they're going to jump up and applaud us for being a Christian? They're not. We're the minority on moral issues. We're taking a stand against the world. We're going to be hated by this place. And that's why we need to be prayed up, armored up, and ready to go to make a stand for Christ in all that we do and all that we say. Now, yeah, Megan. The world does not put the past behind. Um, one of the. Am I asking too many I don't think you're asking too many. No, no one else is raising their hand, Megan. Um, it's, it's not, you know, no one else is. No one else is fighting you for it. Um, no, the world doesn't let things go, and this is what makes Christianity so different. Is the Bible is teaching us that Jesus set the example of forgive and forget. The way we look at it, a world is this. Well, I'll forgive you, but I will never forget what you have done to me. And possibly I will never forgive you. And so what happens is we walk in this mindset of this person has so hurt me, wronged me, that I have the right to be angry, upset, and I have the right to be unchristlike to them. We're really in Ephesians 4.32. says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as Christ forgave you. So it always blows my mind when I run into somebody who claims Christ, who doesn't want to forgive somebody, who doesn't want to let it go, and who doesn't want to be Christ-like to them. Jesus has forgiven you. Jesus has forgotten it. Jesus has moved forward with you. Why do we want to hold on to the past? And usually at this time, it turns into a fight of, well, you don't know what they've done to me. You don't know how they hurt me. No, I don't know. But I know what I did to Jesus, and he forgave me. And so we forgive. Forgive does not mean what they did was okay. Forgive means that I cancel that debt and I no longer let it have power over me. You know, bitterness is an awful, awful thing. I had somebody give me a note years ago that said bitterness is like taking poison but hoping the other person dies. When you allow bitterness to get into your life towards somebody, it just eats you up and destroys you. Forgiveness is setting them free. I've used this example with you before. I believe it was in the late 50s, maybe early 60s, there was a big debate going on over in Israel. Germany was offering reparations to Israel for, because of the Holocaust. And there was a group of people in Israel that said, we can never accept that reparations because it makes it sound like the Holocaust was okay and they can put a dollar figure on it, so no. And then there was another group that says, you know what, accept it. It doesn't make what happened in the Holocaust right, but it's over, it's done, and we move on. Sometimes I see believers saying, I can't forgive them or let it go because then it makes it sound like everything they've done is okay. No, then you're not understanding forgiveness. Forgiveness does not mean what you did was right. Forgiveness means I no longer let it have power over me. I have let it go and I'm moving forward in Jesus Christ. What you still did was awful and wrong. But it's not having power over me. I have canceled that debt. I have let it go. So, yes, the world does not understand forgiveness. The world does not get forgiveness. But as believers, we should understand it better than anybody because of what Christ did for us. Anybody else have anything here before we go on? Yeah, surely. That's just the beginning. Amen. Saved, righteous, and holy. You know, we could do a whole study on what I call the ED words. We are sanctified. Paul says this. How's this one for a mind blower? Paul says you are glorified. I mean, you can just go on. We are sanctified. We are justified. We are glorified. 
they are words that we normally don't use in everyday language. But when you stop and study them out, man, I am justified. I am made clean and right just as if I've never sinned. I'm glorified, meaning that God, when he looks at me, already looks at me in glory of being his child in heaven. It's just, it's just amazing. Absolutely amazing. It is growth. You know, sanctified is one of those interesting words, like Shirley says. Sanctified has two meanings. You are sanctified, which means set apart, holy. Sanctified also means I'm growing. I'm being sanctified, growing into the picture of Christ. So when I get saved, I am sanctified. But then the Bible also teaches something called the sanctification process, where hopefully you can look back over your Christian walk and say, I've become more and more like Jesus. If you look at your Christian walk right now and compare it to five years ago, ten years ago, and you have not seen growth, step back and say, why is that? Because I'm supposed to be becoming more and more like Christ. It's kind of like what I do with the boys at home. We put the marks on the wall for their height. You can see their height grow. Well, hopefully you can see yourself spiritually grow in Christ as well, too. All right, anybody else got anything here? Megan. Yes, I do know you from before. Did you change? Yes, you've changed a lot, Megan. That's the beauty of, that's the neat thing of, um, I've been out here 20, 23 years, coming up to 24 years. And some of you seeing you grow, you know, some of you are walking miracles in what the Lord's done in your life. And I hope it goes the same way too for you. Some of you that have been going to church with me for 20 years, hopefully you can stop and say, gosh, I've hopefully seen James grow. That's the beauty of being the body of Christ. Now, here's the problem with being the body of Christ. We annoy each other. And so sometimes we don't think people are growing quick enough. Sometimes we don't feel like people are making steps quick enough. And so what happens is we get annoyed with each other. Satan loves to use the body of Christ against the body of Christ. I've shared with people, the person I argue with the most is Dawn. The person I love the most is Dawn. The enemy is going to use my marriage against me. The enemy is going to use the body of Christ against each other. That's what he's going to do. And the more time and energy we get spent on fighting about things and worked up about things on this earth, the less time and energy we have focusing on Christ in heaven. That's really what it comes down to. I only got so much energy in the day. If I'm spending that arguing or getting worked up about something, it doesn't leave much time and energy left to really proclaim the gospel. It just doesn't. We've got to keep our eyes on Christ. Eyes on Christ. Anybody else got anything here before we close up? Hey, one quick last verse here. So we put all this together. Christ is the one. What, what it really comes down to is Christ wants a relationship with you. And what you see here in verse 16, we just talked about that last week in uh, chapter 8. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says, Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. Look at verse 17, and he adds, Their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Wow. See, he wants a relationship. We talked about this last week. He doesn't want the Old Testament set up of one day a year, one person goes into the Holy of Holies and makes atonement for the whole nation. He goes, no, in verse 16, he goes, I, I want a relationship with you in your heart and mind. That's what he wants. Boy, that's what Christ wants. What a beautiful picture that is. That is yeah, Hebrews 10, verse 16. Hebrews 10, verse 16. And then verse 17. Their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. 
All righty. Hey, it's coming up to 8 o'clock here. Um, let's pray before we go. Let me just remind you of a couple things. I know there's lots of announcements, but the, what we've realized out here is there's lots of ministry opportunities. I just want to repeat doing a prison outreach this Saturday and also possibly next Thursday. If that interests you, pray about it. Let me or Rich know. We'll get more details into your hand. If you're not going, please keep that in prayer. Angel tree in the back. Christmas meals over here to my right. Uh, 18th, going to the nursing homes. Just lots of opportunities to get out there and hopefully represent Christ and all that we say and all that we do. Christmas program this Sunday at the 10 o'clock service. Please keep that in prayer. Great outreach potential there as well. We need manual labor to get a lot of the Christmas program stuff from the back to the front. See Tony. She will help direct that. See Rich. And we need some men that are either very strong or not smart to lift the risers up onto the stage. Rich and I were moving them up today, and we decided... We're, we're not going to do that because we were going to hurt ourselves. Richard goes, I'm done. So we got two of them this far. We got two in the back. We'll try to get the rest of them up here. But if you are young with a good back and you want to prove how strong you are to Jesus, come over here with somebody else who wants to prove how strong they are to Jesus. And those risers need to get up on the stage. And then once they get them up on the stage, we can then finagle them to the right locations and Tony can put them up, etc. But you know what? Um, we put a lot of energy and effort into the Christmas program. And it's not to pat ourselves on the back. It's because there's going to be a lot of friends and family that come out. Some of them, it's the only time they come to church all year. And to be honest with you, some of them will come for the Christmas program. And they, and they won't stick around for the message. They'll leave right after the program. So what is important is keep this in prayer on Sunday. Keep the worship in prayer. Because that may be the only time they hear the truth of salvation presented. And also, number two, keep the Christmas program in prayer. Keep those verses and scriptures those kids are going to be sharing. Because if they leave right after the program, that may be the only witness they hear all year. So keep that in prayer. It's not reach, okay? So, hey, thanks for coming. Let's close with the word of prayer and we'll let you go. Lord, good to be here tonight. Good to get into your word just to study it, grow by it. We love you, Lord. And we want to keep eternity focused in all we say and do. And we lift this up in your name. And Lord, we give you Saturday at Toledo Correctional. We give you Christmas program. All for you, Lord. All for you. In your name we pray. Amen. If you guys want to help, head to the back. We'd appreciate that. And uh, you guys have a good week and God bless.